0: You are now tuned in to Saved and Woke. yes i am what up everybody it's your boy msw that's mr saved and woke also known as juan enrique to say here with another episode of the saved and woke podcast now this is not just any episode this is the season five finale can't believe we made it so far i've got a great conversation with none other than my pastor pastor ryan brooks coming up but before we get into that i really want to share with you all revisit with you all some of the best moments from this past season. And I've got to say, they're pretty darn good. Enjoy. Just now I was like, Kenya Barris, because I, I I was not familiar with him at all. I don't really pay attention to credits or anything like that. And yeah. actually, now that I think of it, every time I saw the name Kenya Barris on Blackish, I was like, oh wow, a black woman created this show. That's what's up. <laughs> like- <laughs> Yeah, now I know that Kenya Bears is a man. He's a brother. Yeah. It, so yeah, but that, that is, that's just to show that was not a joke or anything. That was just me showing you, sharing with you how little I knew about about Kenya Bears and about the uh, about Black AF before it came out.
1: Yeah, and and I mean. So I mean even like like I mean his track record, like we'll we'll get a little little deeper in his track record uh later. Uh just with, but he's produced like a number of uh movies and written for a number of like a, a num written a number of movies and uh shows like Girls Trip and you know all the all the ish shows, blackish, grownish, mixedish, uh and you know, so so anyway, so he's got a he's got a good track record there.
0: The man's in his back.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just Pulling just pulling the tricks out, so uh, and so, but yeah, so when we watched it, uh, yeah, the feeling was when I was seeing, when I was seeing like the headlines about all those reviews, I was like, Man, I hate how this does because it, it, yeah, it sort of taints it already. But I'm just like, Yo, like stuff he's made, this can't be that bad, like you know. And so, I, um, and so I watched it because, once again, fan of, um, a fan of blackish, big fan of grownish, um. And then mixed dish, not so much. Like, I've watched it a couple of times. It's, you know, it's all right. And, but I just sort of stopped. So, but anyway, so, you know, watch the first episode. And yeah, it was just like, I feel like it, it was like, imagine having like a meal that you like, like, so for me, like, I love pasta. And, you know, so I'm like, so imagine having like, I don't know, lasagna, just some type of pasta that you're like, yo, this is what's up you see it, you smell it. It's got all the, all the things that hit your senses before taste. You're like, man, it feels good. <laughs> it taste, good. I mean, it smells good. All of that. It looks it's good. Listening in all the right parts. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then, and then like you taste it and you're like, I mean, it's good, but it's just like, there's man. some ingredient missing. Yeah. Like there's, there's something missing. That's just like, if it had and I don't know what it is, but if it had that thing, it would taste like I thought it would from when I, uh, you know, from when I smelled it or, you know, uh, but anyway, but that's, that's yeah. how I
0: felt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Kinda,
1: that, that's, kinda... that's, how, that's how I felt about looking at, like the very first episode. It was like, yeah, it's like it's it's some funny stuff, but it's just like, you know, it's, it's something missing and I just can't quite put my finger on it.
0: Yeah. So initially, so I think what we can do is, maybe to the best of our ability, because I didn't take notes or anything. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just go, I talk about how our, how our view or opinion of the show changed or developed as we watched the four episodes. Because I've only watched one more. I've only watched episode five. But we'll do a review, another review of the last half of the show because there's eight episodes. Mm-hmm. Once we get... Through those. So, my first, I agree with you wholeheartedly about your synopsis of yeah. episode one because it was like, it seems like it's got everything there. I'm like, this guy, he knows how to write good shows. He's got people in there who connect. he got Rashida Jones. She ain't no slouch. Mm-hmm. She's been putting in work. Great concept. You know, I mean, I don't think black people can get enough content. Like, we, there's, no, there's not going to be too many black shows. No. So I was really ex- excited for it. And I think what that pasta was missing, what this show is missing, is charm.
2: <clears throat>
0: that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's still kind of an abstract, in, intangible quality. You can't really put your finger on but like my thing is like it's a comedy i love comedies. usually the pretty much the only thing i watch i just watch comedies. my favorite shows are comedies you mm-hmm. know comedies are action stuff and it wasn't funny <laughs> it just was not funny it wasn't it wasn't relatable <clears throat> and i think a lot of people were saying it wasn't relatable because they're too rich but i don't think
1: <sighs> yeah
0: what unites people isn't, I mean, some, like, yeah, For a lot of white people struggle, a lot of black people struggle, struggle financially, but, I, like, you know, there's, there, uh, there's a uniquely black experience that we all, in some form or fashion, experience due to the color of our skin. Like, we can change everything about us, but we can't change this here. We can't change, the, change this melanin um, for most of us. How can we be sure that Christianity wasn't, um created by uh europeans specifically uh by constantine people like tell him all the time for creating christianity
3: okay so there's several ways to approach this number one it's not even number one it's just the first one i'm gonna say they're not in any order but Prophecy I, I, Prophecy was a huge way of um, reopening my understanding uh, and, and changing my approach of how I saw the Bible when I was coming out of being a member of the conscious community. Um, seeing the timelines and the claims that the Bible made and then when they were fulfilled. And seeing the commonalities throughout the different gospels and throughout the different um, books from different authors over generations, over hundreds of years. Nobody is smart enough to do that, bruh. Like, who? No. Y'all give the white man too much credit. He is not that smart. Nobody's that smart. I'm not saying the white man is done, but I'm definitely saying that it requires a certain level of... genius to put together the Bible that we have, especially if we study it. So that's one. The Bible itself is a a testament to the fact that it could not have been written. And when I say written, I mean, um, it could not have originated with man. We know that it was the the hands of men that moved, but it was the spirit that spoke through them. Um, That's one. So another one is there are records of Christians, but not only Christians, Christians who are being persecuted and martyred, killed by Romans prior to Constantine ever even being thought of, before him being conceived. Constantine is just a name everybody likes, and they just throw all of these accusations upon his name and all these accolades. And like I said, they like to give him so much credit without investigating as to whether any of these things are true. Um, Constantine did not come up with the name Jesus. Constantine did not put together the Bible. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with canon, which is what we understand to be acceptable scripture, the Bible that we have. That, that council had nothing to do with that. But a, a lie often repeated becomes the truth in the minds of the hearer. So we've heard it so much, we just take it for granted. Oh, okay, yeah, Constantine, you know, uh, you know Christianity was just beaten into the answers. That, that's something that we just believe because we've heard it so much. Um, but that doesn't make it true. And so it does, I think, require a certain level of sincerity and genuineness on the part of the reader and the part of the person who's questioning to actually conduct some investigation beyond the the words of whoever you're listening to. So I think that education plays a, a, a huge role simply because a lot of times people aren't taught how to investigate things. We think that reading is researching. Reading ain't researching, babe. Reading is a part of research. But if you're taking everything you read at face value, then you're not conducting research. You have to fact check what some author says happened at the Council of Nicaea. Where did they get this idea from? What documents are they reading to put this in this book? By what authority are you saying this? This is how we conduct research. And when you do that, you will find that all of these fallacious, I want to say 99.5% of all of these fallacious claims um, are false. And then the other 0.5% are somehow taken out of context. Hmm. um and so we have the history of like i said martyrs there are records uh felicitas and perpetua this is the year 202 they're being killed under uh septimus uh severus who issued it edict to kill christians basically um and and we have documents we have actual historical records these women i just referred to one of them wrote a diary about how she was being persecuted and how she was in jail and how her father came to visit her and told her to read renounce her Christianity um, so that she wouldn't die and what did she do she got killed so this again this is a black woman long before Constantine and I think also I'll take the second to, to, to issue a caveat and that is the only reason why race even matters the only reason why I have to highlight that the woman is black is because Europeans have done so much to besmirch the name of Christ that we associate anything having to do with Europeans as evil right and so we have to be able to show that there is a distinction between like you said earlier between white supremacist christianity and that you know that version or that ideology and what's actually written in the bible and that leads me to, to back to the bible again for my third point and how do we how do we assess that christianity is not in fact the white man's religion the white man ain't living by the book bruh if you hold him to the standard and i'm not talking about whole race of people being condemned that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is the idea the 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 avatar of the white man that we have in our mind the slave holding slave whipping beating raping that guy that man stealing guy was not abiding by the bible and so how can the faith have belonged to him or him have created it and he doesn't abide by it if i was going to create a religion one if i was going to create a religion first of all the writings of that religion, the oracles, the documents are going to be centered on me. Why is the white man so very little spoken of in the Bible? It's people of color who are the main focus in the Bible. Why would I write a book about everybody else and then say that's my religion? It makes no sense. Secondly, I'm, if I'm going to write a book or create a religion, that religion is going to serve me. It's going to be self-serving. If it's man-made, it has to serve man, right? Yeah. But Why then does the Bible condemn the behavior of slave catchers if, because another, you did mention Constantine, but another thing that people often argue is that Christianity was invented as a tool specifically to oppress Africans in in conjunction with the slave trade. If that's the case, why does the Old Testament and the New Testament both condemn man-stealing and selling off human beings? Why? Wouldn't they have left that part out? And this is why also they actually redacted the Bible when they did allow slaves to read it. They only allowed us to have certain portions of it. And that w- and those were... Portions like slaves obey your master but then they didn't they just a few verses down if you keep reading it says and you masters also be kind towards them because you know that you have a master who is the same as their master that you have to answer to let's leave that part out before the slaves think that they're equal to us you understand what i'm saying um so i think all of these things upon an intelligent analysis of history and of what the bible actually teaches condemns and dismantles this whole idea that christianity is the white man's or invented by the white man um, for the purpose of, of oppressing us.
0: We struggle with patience because we don't know how to deal with the present. We should be patient in hardship, although that is the most difficult time to be patient, especially right now. This has been the most difficult time for me to be patient, for me to just joyfully wait on the Lord. And if you're struggling with that as well, I mean, I just hope that just knowing that it's not just you is encouraging. We're all in this together. Um, On top of that, James said that not only are we to be long suffering, but we are also to have a loving attitude during this suffering, particularly with other believers. Um, And usually the last thing you want to be while you're suffering is loving. While you're suffering or in pain, you become just acutely aware of your experience, and therefore less likely to, to to share love, the love of God, with somebody else. And one thing that also also hurt, and I was just like, "Dang, man, this is hard." Because it said like we're supposed to be loving towards other believers. That would be easier if I knew that all the believers, I guess, in the in the nation, and even that you know, in my church and in my circles. Or at least, "quote unquote," on my side in terms of these social justice issues. But a lot of professing Christians are sympathetic to or uh, white supremacist ideology and white supremacist behavior. They are sympathetic to, and uh, or 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 vehemently on the side of white supremacy. And the subjugation, marginalization, and oppression of of black people and other people of color, or in any or any other what we call in social work out groups, um, but we have to love everybody. And I just, I, uh I know Jesus said that you know what good does it do for you to love and be kind to your friends? Because don't even heathens do that? And we have to love. Our enemies, and I just really have to seek God to make sure that, as I seek justice, as I fight for justice, and as I boldly and unashamedly hold people accountable for their wickedness and unrighteousness, that at the same time I love them.
4: I think, like anyone, believer or not, like you as a person of color, you are frustrated, um, you are sad you know, you're exhausted, because it seems to be the same thing every time. And it's just kind of like, okay, Lord, (laughs) Maranatha, because this is just way too much. Like, just go ahead. Let's, let's just be done with this. Um, So, you know, I, when I first heard, anytime I I hear the news, it always takes me to a place where it's just, I just feel just kind of hopeless. I think I was, I shared on Facebook after the Ahmad, after he was murdered, Um, just, I had a moment to reflect before going to work and I just felt so heavy because it's like, man, I, you know, I'm I'm a black woman and I'm the wife of a black man. I have brothers, you know, um, I have uncles. And so just to sit there and think how it's just, it's just so exhausting that whenever my, my husband leaves home for work, I'm like, Lord, keep him, like, don't let him fit a description. Please don't let him come across the wrong person. It's just, it's just that thing that some people will never have to, as a wife would never have to understand. And it's just, and too, you know, when they bring a child into this world, you know, whether it's a girl or a boy, it's just, they will have to deal with this. And it's just, sometimes it's just sad to think that, okay, I have to bring my child into this world and try to help them understand how to navigate all of this, but also help them understand that, yeah, because of this hatred, Um, people may treat you this way, but you were created in the image of God. And regardless of what they say, like, you are valuable, you are worthy, you have purpose. God put put you here for a reason. and He loves you. Um, So, yeah, like where I am now, um, I'm still frustrated. I think I'm more frustrated, especially with, because people outside of the church, I expect them to respond the way they respond. Um, People who are not people of color, who are white, Um, But I think I'm super frustrated with white evangelicals and their unwillingness (laughs) to admit to these atrocities or acknowledge like this is happening. Um, That's extremely frustrating because as a believer, regardless of color, like we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I don't see a lot of loving (laughs) from my neighbors. Um, So that's extremely frustrating. Um, And an interesting dynamic for me is I'm a part of a multi-ethnic church. So, you know, I have people that, that will rock with me anytime. Like if I say we marching, they with me, you know, white, Hispanic, whatever. And so my thing where I am now is just trying to make sure I keep my heart in the right place. um, Not allowing my frustration or any type of bitterness to allow me to take that frustration out on the people I know, would rock with me. They would be out there with me in the streets fighting Um, if I ever came to them. The people who love me as their sister, regardless um, of me being a Black woman, that they can acknowledge I'm a Black woman and, and love me as I am and all of who I am as a Black woman. Um, So yeah, like the initial response is just like everyone, frustrated, sad, disappointed, all of that. But where I am right now is just, again, making sure I keep my heart in the right place. Because it's not everyone. Um I hate when people make sweeping generaliz- generalizations of African Americans and as you know with women so I try not to to do that same thing. I try to make sure I don't try to ascribe this to every person that doesn't look like me. Um, so yeah that's that's where I am right now.
0: It started this mass movement of not just not just protests and not just riots but also this huge resurgence of this this reconstruction movement where people were getting to the heart or getting closer to the heart of of systemic institutionalized racism and going and moving past just symbolic symbolic moves or symbolic representations of uh, of of societal sympathy for the plight of Black people. It was like, no, we want some real change. We thank you for kneeling with us, but what are you going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen? How are we going to restructure society? How are we going to, excuse me, how are we going to either defund or refund the police so that they actually help and... They'd actually protect and serve the community like they say they're going to do. so since you wrote this article and I'm, I'm, I would like to have you uh, read some more excerpts because they were powerful. Um, but since you've written this article, has your views have your views on this changed at all?
5: Since I wrote this article, so I was immediately challenged by others who have the same argument of well, you know, it took this article um, or it took this video, this image to actually you know uh, cause some form of change to take place so we're thankful for the image um and i heard that i i hear it i still receive it for me um black death has been a reality of the american uh history since 1619. uh this is not new to us this is something that we have been dealing with um since our uh, force entry into this country and even since then we still as a people uh, are are, are uh, not where we ought to be we as a country are not where we ought to be as it relates to recognizing the humanity of black and brown people and to this day i would still say that the issue is not an issue of being uh, of not uh, recognizing that this is a problem. Uh, we don't need images to to realize that this is a problem. What we do need uh, is for our white brothers and sisters, as well as some of our uh, black and brown brothers and sisters. I saw that in the D uh, in the RNC these these past few days. <laughs> we 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 need them to become conscious. Of a reality that we are living every single day of our lives, and for me, what these images do is it serve as a form of re-traumatizing me, of a reality that I have to wake up with every morning. You know, as a man of color, regardless, i don't have this collar on every day—and <laughs> and so as a man of color, like I, I run the risk of being a victim Mm -hmm. to police violence and oppression. I I run the risk of being a victim of white supremacy every morning that I wake up. That's just the reality that I live. And what what I was trying to say in this article, in this piece, and in general, is that for people who uh, are finally being awakened to a reality that we have lived with. Um, Let me help you out. And let me say to you, uh, don't allow an image to cause you to become conscious. Why don't you get to know us? Why don't you build relationships with us? Why don't you hear our stories and actually listen to them? Why don't you care about us in a way that I don't need an image to validate my experience? The fact that I speak it, should be enough validation for you to realize this Mm. is a problem Mm. and that's what i'm trying to counter because what what we are living in is that uh now white america is saying oh this is a problem and it's only because we can see it now we're at home you know because of because of quarantine and COVID. we were at home and we were in spaces with our families where we had to answer some really hard questions because these images are splattered on the news media they are splattered across social media our children are seeing it and they're asking us what is this why is this happening as if this just started yesterday but this has been our reality and if we would have taken the time to listen to each other they would have known and we could have we really could have been making some substantial changes about it
0: So it sounds like you're saying that while, yes, some people are becoming aware of the realities that black people have lived in for a while because of these images, the fact that it takes the images for them to acknowledge it is the problem. And therefore showing them the image is not solving the problem. It's just kind of validating this state that you say we should not be in.
5: Yes. Very true. Because I mean, if we, were, if we just juxtapose this to black death versus white death, right? You and I were of age during the uh, war, uh, Iraq war. And we, we heard about the brutalities. We heard about um, the beheadings, uh, mm. but national media did not dare circulate those images because it was too horrific. But yet black death is not horrific enough for them not to circulate it. In fact, you know, with the recent uh, shooting that just happened in Wisconsin, you know, I was just on social media, not even looking for it. And then bam, it just pops up, right? It's, it's in circulation. It, it, is, it becomes normal in a way that we are desensitized to it. And that, desensitate, that, that, that form of desensitization is problematic in and of itself because we're still, even in death, are having to articulate Black Lives Matter.
0: Jesus. Wow. And I feel like the struggle that I had when I was reading, or yeah, I'll call it that, the struggle that I was having while I was reading your article for the first time is that I, I felt, and I wouldn't be surprised if others felt this way as well, that it's like we're in, in between a rock and a hard place where we don't want to be desensitized from violence. But we also don't want you to ignore what we're going through and we don't want you to ignore what what is happening so we have to show the video and the more we see it the more desensitized we are but the less you can say you didn't know
6: and i and i bring this up because i think this is particularly um, for um christians who are not white And some who are, who who acknowledge um, the the uncovering, I'll call it of racism in this nation that Trump did for a lot of people. Um, So acknowledging that and at the same time, like holding these Christian views, and I'll put that in quotation marks (laughs) because not all Christians held the same views, but he described them as basic morality. And I said, it depends on how you define morality. Like he's thinking about these two, like two things, two things saying this is basic morality. And so people are so caught up on that republicanized identity as a Christian that you don't see all of the other things that are happening right (laughs) and that these two issues are are so big to you that you forget the central message of the gospel right Because to me, if you want to start talking about basic morality, you have to talk about caring for the poor, the imprisoned, right? The orphan. Like, that's what the Bible says is like basic, right? And that's not anything that I've ever seen on a Republican platform. So, I mean, it's so it was predictable but still
0: disappointing you know yeah i yeah that was very well said That's yeah predictable but still disappointing deeply disappointing and yeah when i when i was watching the watching the well not watching but just as i was refreshing my my google results i was just like i guess in between the times i was refreshing i was just sitting there i'm like wow And I was just thinking about all these people. I'm like, okay, so y'all just, racism just is not a deal breaker for you. Racism is not a deal breaker for you. And I think Monique, she actually has the book back here. Uh, It's not on this shelf, but it's called Dying of Whiteness. Mm. And so not only is racism not a deal breaker for you, racism is you're more more loyal to racism than you are concerned with your own well-being. Because, and I think I was maybe like last month or a couple months ago, the UNC School of Social Work had... You know, Reverend Reverend Barber as a guest. I had to, I was trying to I was going to try and say his uh, first name, but I always say Tiki Barber, the football player here. When I try, yeah. is
2: it, is it <laughs> so Robert?
0: just Reverend Barber.
2: Yeah. Is it Robert? so Reverend Barber?
0: <laughs> I I think so. Yeah. We're going to go with that. <laughs> so <laughs> Reverend Barber came. Virtually, of course. And he was explaining to us how conservatives use racism not just to disenfranchise Black people and other minorities, but then to, to dupe uh, poor and working class white people out of the government and social services that not just would help them, but that they need like the one on the table now, healthcare. Um, so in, in the book, dying of whiteness, one of the people that was interviewed. So he just, uh, the, the writer, the, the author, I, I don't remember his name. Cause I haven't read the book myself, but I've read excerpts from it. The, the writer, he was interviewing a man who was staunchly against Obamacare, even though, I think he was actually eligible for it, but he, he just chose not to take advantage of it because he was just so against it. And, and by the time he had finished writing the book, that man was dead. Mm. And so, like, I think a lot of times we talk about when uh, sometimes uh Democrats talk about how, like, the poor and working class uh, Republican people are voting against their own self interest, like, you know socially and ideologically but it's like no biologically like physically you are voting against you are voting against something that will save your life could you go into some to some detail about how the housing projects were organized uh specifically for for black people and like why they were organized in the way that they were organized. And the reason I want you to do that is because I feel like the prevailing narrative around housing projects, especially those with uh, people of color, is that, oh, wherever Black people or people of color are, there is violence and crime because they have, they're at like a cultural deficit. There's something wrong with Black people. They don't know how to manage themselves. Basically, pretty much, they don't know how to act right. And and govern themselves, but and, and that's why the projects are like the way, are, are are the way they are, are in the state that they're in, and experience the things that they experience. But could you go into like some more background of like the actual history?
7: Yeah. So, um, really, first, uh, I would like to say start with the word ghetto, right? So that didn't originate from uh, black people. That actually from uh, originated from Jewish people, and uh, they were put in ghettos when they were uh, going up, and they put them into pretty much. They took. You know, a, a large group of people, a large number of people, and they put them into really small, tiny spaces, right? And they put them into really tall, uh, really small, and and tiny living spaces. At that, and so uh, they had apartment buildings, and um, let's just say one apartment building, you have one room, one bedroom, or even no bedroom, and you may have ten people living in there. And so instead of building out, they decided to build up, right? And so they had stacked one on top of the other, and they. As many people in this one short span Like a mile or two mile radius And they pile hundreds and hundreds and hundreds Maybe even thousands of people Into this one small space um, Anybody living in that type of environment Will uh, deal with a lot of different anxieties And a lot of different traumas I mean, <laughs> you need your space I mean, just imagine somebody all of you You're living in a five bedroom home And you're like, you know what? Like, let me go to my room And let me separate and close the door Because you need your space Just imagine not having a bedroom Right? Just imagine living in, in a, in a, in a one-room uh, apartment and it's 10 people, and y'all are sprouted, y'all spread it everywhere, right? So that originated there, right? When we're talking about the Jewish people, and that kind of transitioned into black people, and they began to at Chicago actually kind of led the charge in building housing projects. And one of the main things was that how can we uh, because they were dealing with the huge migration from and what I mean by that is that Uh, A lot of uh, the people from the south began to migrate north once slavery was abolished and they were looking for opportunities for jobs and for housing and for education. So they began to spread to a lot of places north uh, and they began to lay this out from Mississippi and from uh, you got Georgia and uh, just things of that nature, right? South Carolina, they began to lead the South, migrated to the North, to Chicago, Detroit, and they went Northeast to New York and Philly. And they went uh, even to the West Coast to uh, to California. And that's when they hit up like Compton and Watts. And they began to hit up all these different urban areas. Well, they became urban areas. And so Chicago is one of the main ones that had a flood coming from the South, right? Coming there. And they were like, what can we do with all these black people that's coming here? right? How can we house them? And so uh, they were there looking for jobs and they were only able to get minimum wage jobs. And so uh, they created uh, section eight housing where they didn't necessarily have to pay a lot of money to, to take care of that housing. Uh, but in order for them to uh, accommodate uh, the black people in the community, instead of building out, they built, they, uh, built their buildings up the same way they did in the Jewish community. And so they built these apartment buildings, one on top of the other, and they stacked hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of black people into a one small space, right? And they either had one, either no bedroom, one bedroom or two bedroom homes. And so there was a lot of different qualifications for that uh, in order to live there. Uh, One of the things that they really was pushing because it was uh, definitely a sign of systematic racism is that if you, they could not have a two parent household. If a woman was to live there and she was married or she had a a boyfriend, he could not live there with her, even if he was a father of her child. And so in order for them to be able to get the voucher to live there, they had to um, pretty much break up the home. The man had to be out of the home and the woman had to be there by herself with the children. So you can imagine if you have a woman that's there and she has like maybe two or three or four kids. And let's just say the more kids you have. Uh, not, let's just say, but this one was. The more kids you had, the more money you would receive. And so if you had two, three, four, you know, kids, you would get, you know, a certain amount of money. And then on top of that, you had a situation where if she's at home by herself and she has to work, she has to make some type of money. She has to have, you know, bring in some type of ends meet. The, the man is not allowed to be there. And so she's out working. Then who's at home raising the children? that's where they're left to being out in the streets, right? In the community is out raising them. And so when you have a situation that's like that, where uh, you have young people that's trying to raise other young people and they're trying to do what they can. And you have young mothers trying to do what she can and working hard and trying to take care of the kids. And you don't have a father around. You don't have a male figure around. You are creating an environment that's ripe for violence. You create an environment that's ripe for substance abuse. You create an environment that's ripe for early teen pregnancies. You create an environment that's ripe for a lot of different traumas to go on in there, right? Uh, because you know, when you're you in those type of situations and you pile on top of one another and you're around a large group of people all the time, that can get very frustrating. And people um, turn to a lot of different vices in order to release their frustration right, drug abuse, they go to sex or they go to alcohol abuse and, you know, so forth and so on. And so that's what you began to see in the housing projects in Chicago, particularly in Cabrini Green. And that's where they began to like, just pile these people in there. And it got to the point where the police just didn't even bother uh, responding to calls, to 911 calls. When the violence was just so hectic, they didn't even want to go there. If they had to go there, they had to get a tactical unit because how they set it up, it was just so many different uh, barriers around it, and so many different escape pods and and areas that were not uh, secure that it was just it was just too crazy for the police. And it was they were even scared to go there a lot of the times to police that area. And so, what do you have? You have uh, gang members policing the area. And so. Um, Anyway, that's just a little bit about how Cabrini Cabrini Green particularly came to be. Uh, There are a lot of different other housing projects as well throughout the city of Chicago that took on the same format like they did in Cabrini Green. But the main goal was to get as many uh, African-Americans into a tight space as possible and put them in there. Instead of building out, they decided to build up.
0: Because they don't see something, because they, quote, unquote, don't see race um, or they don't think about their race. It's just like... I. I think that they ascribe that incorrectly and, and mis- or maybe mistakenly to mm-hmm. Christianity. I'm like, oh, well, I, don't see Christ- I don't see race mm-hmm. because I'm a believer and I don't see all that stuff. But I was just mm-hmm. like, well, your non-believer, your non-believing uh, other, non- other non-believing white people, they also don't think about their race.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: So if you don't think about your race, and you don't think <laughs> it, pretty much everything about y'all is the same, Christianity is not the reason why. Like, like y'all, mm-hmm. y'all, and y'all are still both, uh, y'all still have the same mentality in this issue. So, so it has nothing, so it doesn't have to do with your Christianity, pretty much.
6: Right, right. And it does, it has to do with the the dominant American narrative, um, which includes an American gospel, an Americanized gospel. And so if it doesn't fit into that American view, so it's like while with, with those American lenses, while we're not seeing the American things, we're not seeing how how that American lens is being superimposed onto our theological beliefs. And so we end up with a belief system that's just as much american if not more than it is biblical
0: yes Ooh. <laughs> man yeah exactly exactly right all right um yeah and that yeah i think that's a huge hurdle that a lot of people have to go through that i had to go through or go over and overcome and I think we need to pray for we need to be in constant prayer for people to be able to see not just only how their uh national context but even how your your racial context your socioeconomic status will uh will blind you from it because I remember one thing I was also thinking about like that kind of struck me one time we had a visiting pastor I don't know if you were there or not but he was talking about how we're supposed to be unifying across racial lines and across socioeconomic status. And then when he said socioeconomic status, that struck me because when I thought about it, I was like, I mean, a lot of people say that Sunday is the most racist day of the week, Mm -hmm. which is true because people tend to go worship with people that look like them. But I also think when I thought about it, I was like, I think Sunday might also be the most socioeconomically Mm -hmm. stratified day of the week too, because people like you mostly find middle class, middle to upper class people going to church with other middle to upper class people. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of working class or or poor people in, in, in those churches. And I've always been in the churches with middle class people. And I was just like, that was like, that was a huge realization to me. It was, but that was one of those moments where my middle class lenses were taken off. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, yo. Mm-hmm. And, and, and especially like, Considering all that the Bible says about caring for the poor, and I I know a lot of people, you know, say that, you know, the church is not supposed to be social services, which, you know, sure. But we are at least supposed to be taking care of poor believers, of people of poor people who are in the church. (laughs) I
6: have a lot to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just
0: like, but y'all don't we don't even know them. We don't know them we can't even see them and sometimes we will ascribe sinfulness to poverty.
6: Right, and like so like we have nice, this idea yeah. that that there are no saved poor people, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah kind of like what I was saying earlier about, you know, immigrants, like re- having, realizing the lenses that I had about Immigrants or people who were not American needing like mm-hmm. evangelism and being put in a position where I was learning from them, like, whoa, <laughs> like that's that's faith right there. <laughs> um, wow. but as we were talking, I, I was thinking about a scripture that I've kind of been med- med- meditating on for the past few days in Jeremiah 29. Where God is telling his people, you know, they've been exiled, but God is like, make your home here. Mm -hmm. And not only that, seek the welfare of the city and pray for the city, because if the city has welfare, then you'll have your welfare. And so for me that means as god's people as the church our seeking justice can't be just for ourselves it has to be for the whole city
1: wow
0: i had already started the process of deconstructing my faith and coming into an understanding of what the prosperity gospel was and how much of what i was taught it was just unbiblical and but that documentary just it just pretty much to me anyway i think it does it does a a pretty thorough job of outlining the main tenets or characteristics of prosperity Mm -hmm. gospel like not just the from a theological basis but what like ministers will do to kind of like protect themselves and protect their prosperity gospel kingdom so to
4: speak yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: And I was just like, wait, so this is prosperity gospel. And I just have to like go back, like, wait, so that means this thing that I believe is not true. And if I don't believe this, then that means this thing that I've been doing is completely unbiblical. It's completely unspiritual. It's just all me. Um, And it's like so much of my prayers weren't really prayers are like demands Mm. and fueled by just straight up selfish ambition. Mm -hmm.
6: And
0: like, and there's so much uh, like, I became to like read the Bible more humbly. It hurt, but I'm so great. I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful that that you went through it as well. I remember, I remember, so- I could tell if something was going on, like you was different. Like, <laughs> right? I, was, I was like, man, even before you left, cause like you had this look on you that, that was like, yeah. Like, I'm not like y'all no more. <laughs> not that, you know, we're anything bad, but it's just like, you know we used to be on the same page i'm on a different page now yeah My, maybe even a different book yeah that's how so, yeah, it felt sometimes I'm glad cool so you shared your journey your faith journey which we're all still on um so how and you kind of you kind of got to this but how would you say you became socially conscious or yeah, how so- did you, how did you wake up <laughs>
6: Um, So when I was in Tucson, I think the first step was the fact that it was my first time being in a city that was so white (laughs) and there there was not a large um, Black population at all. And it kind of threw me because... I was used to being like the only black girl in class. Um, I went to Wake Forest University, so like very white, but it was a whole different level, like being in a whole city where it was like very white, not just like in terms of people, because there's a a significant um, Latinx population there, right? But, Tucson is where I started to understand what people meant when they said protecting whiteness. Hmm. I saw that show up in a lot of ways, like especially being a speech language pathologist who studies bilingualism and, you know, knowing the research about the benefits of bilingualism and then seeing like all of the policies that are against bilingualism.
0: Like the thing that created the middle class was the creation of the FHA loans. Because up until that point, before, before FHA loans were, were, uh, were instituted by the government, the only way to in, to, in order to buy a house, you had to pay 50% upfront. And then when you mortgage the rest, the, you had to pay it off within five to 10 years and so if you weren't wealthy there was no way you could buy you could own a home after fha loans though where you could come with zero to 20% down and then you could finance it for up to 30 years then that opened it up for lower income people to to take part in in in, in home ownership it created the middle class and it also opened up the uh, that generational wealth, because you can, you can when you have when you own land and when you own property, you can give it to your to your children and to your children's children. You can do that. And like I said, they don't care if we have jobs because you can't no, you cannot pass down a job.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: You can't pass down your paycheck, or your income to your kids when you leave this world. When you leave that job, that job is immediately somebody else's. But home ownership is not, not only is it, you know, uh, one of the, the main, I guess I'd like the foundation for a lot of people's generational wealth. It's like, it's the, this, the number one, the number one way for for the, the number one millionaire creating market or in the U S is, is real estate. And if it's not number one right now, it, it was for a very long time and probably is still top three, maybe, maybe top two. So he, he accidentally answered the question correctly which is generational wealth. But then his explanation of it was kind of a little off. He was like, because if your parents didn't teach you and then, she, then the, the lady uh, after him kind of went into the whole education piece. And so I feel like they're kind of defaulting to, oh, they don't know enough. So again, it's even, I don't I don't think there's malice in their heart, but there's this this false narrative that the reason people are poor and in this case, specifically black people is because they don't know how to manage their, they don't know how to, they don't know what to, they don't know what to do there's this uh there's this deficit in them, and so there there's not an understanding of the societal political and economic forces that are aimed against black people to keep them to keep them uh, in, in lower status yeah, yep shall we continue shannon
1: Yeah, let's go. all right, let's do
0: this. We're three minutes in
1: <laughs> um
6: I guess that's
5: part of it. <laughs> Should I ask that? Um, you seem nervous I, to ask it. Just ask it. What are you
3: asking? No, I, I, I mean, I'm just, it's just, that's just a guess. I have no idea. You
5: just, you, so you're guessing that it's because of financial education and the lack of financial education in the, the black community? The lack of
6: financial education, I guess. I mean, if, I, I mean, I guess I would need the percentages of black people who...
0: Oh, that was one thing I was going to, another thing I was going to say. Well, Cause when you said that, that comment, I think, I think you said was huge about why it's not so much about financial education. When you talked about like your friends who knew pretty much the same amount of, about money as you did, but were still like way, way better off. And like I said, so yeah, it's that generational wealth gap. But one example, I don't know where these metaphors be coming to me from, man. But so a lot of times I like to play like action video games, adventure video games. Where you have to like level up and your character grows stronger as the or at least gets more abilities and better stuff uh as you can progress through the game Some like sometimes games will have this thing set up where like when you start when you first start the game you play play new game completely fresh right but sometimes like after you end the game uh you go back to the start menu there's this option called new game plus where you start the game over but you have all the abilities from your first playthrough so every all the powers all the weapons you have those at the beginning and I remember there was just like parts of the the beginning of the game that you know are challenging because you know you're weak and and then it's like you come with these all these new abilities that from another playthrough from so basically from another lifetime that somebody at the end of their life gave to you and you just It's it's so, it's so easy. I I mean, it doesn't, and I was like, does this make the game more fun? Um, But it does, it definitely makes it easier. And it's just like, it, it, yeah, it makes the game way, way easier. And you end up, of course, ending the game with, with, with more stuff than you ever would have had um, had you started like a true new game. And like that generational wealth, I think is like a new game plus to the power of however many people were wealthier left you with something before yeah. Uh, yeah so like if you had three three generations of people passing down stuff to you it 's like then that 's like three new game pluses, like everything that somebody i mean of course people don 't give every single thing, but I think the you know the illustration uh, has been set up it 's like it 's like a new game plus why people get new game, new game new game plus. And black folks, we get a new game with different rules, and a broke controller.
1: But it's like at the same time when there are obstacles in your way, or uh, and and so I think a lot of times, even when we mention obstacles, we mention, oh, this is something in your way to, that's making it tough for you to get there. Uh, but we don't really account for the thing that you're on your way there and something pulls you back or you know or knocks you back so you know so it's not even just getting over that hump it's getting over that hump and putting distance between you and that hump Uh, and that's one of the things that like i said we don't really mention because one uh something came to mind was you know do we think the people in Tulsa Oklahoma in 1921 did they believe that they could not own their own banks and become like financially stable on uh you know on their own they wholeheartedly believed they could. In fact, they did. And then what happened? Uh, You know, they, they believed it, they achieved it. uh, And I mean, they were on their way to making it even, you know, even bigger. Uh, And I'm mentioning this, this is, you know, what we call black wall street uh, and forces, forces being racist, you know, racist white people uh, during that time um, were unhappy with this and destroyed the things that they had built. So there, so, their beliefs came to fruition, they created, they were doing the things, but something came back and, you know, and destroyed it. So that's just Tulsa, Oklahoma, like, there are many, many other examples of, of people that are, like, they truly believe they can achieve this thing, they're on their way to achieving it, or maybe even have achieved it, and there's, and there can be a force that, that pulls them back, and it's more than just a setback, like, you know, a setback is, on my way to becoming financially stable or, uh, you know, creating this generational wealth or whatever it could be. I made a bad investment. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I lost my job. Like maybe like that's a setback, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking even like historically where like that setback was not something that simple. It was someone literally like tried to kill you or maybe did kill you. They burn your bank to the ground, you know, like, so I started thinking like, like that, that heavy, um, and then I think the other the other point that sort of comes to mind is uh, I was actually just reading this the other day. It was talking about uh, I'm talking a little more about the sort of the uh, uh, racial wealth gap. And so there was a statistic that was showing that among many of our white counterparts, uh, so for for many of them, if their family was in poverty, they have about a maybe a two generation cycle of poverty. So many people, they they can sort of trace back and it might be like, okay, we could see like maybe two generations ago, this is like when our family was in poverty and, you know, then this thing happened, maybe, you know, grandparents got this great job, something happened and then parents were on the come up as well. So at the closest, there's maybe like a two generation, you know, sort of gap there where they can be like, we had this and and then this happened. Now, you know, maybe if we're saying like maybe rural, whites that are rural and in poverty, that it might be a little bigger. Uh, but for many of our, uh, well, for many of us in terms of Black people, that sort of two cycle, I'm sorry, two generation cycle uh, is much less. Like in in fact, many of us, it sort of broke down to like, we are that one, uh, you know, so it's sort of like, for me, a setback, I mean, it, it could essentially be if I go to jail, like I could get bad grades, I could go to jail, you know, whatever it is. And I'm, and that's sort of like the huge setback, uh, you know, putting putting us back into poverty or, or changing those options we have. So, so one of the things, one of the things that comes to mind is I wish they would maybe ask the question. Uh, well, well, it's all white people in here, and and one one black black person, um, but just have a diverse room and everything. But I wish they would sort of go around and just ask like basically, how, if you would consider this, how long has your family been broke? Or when did your family stop being broke? If, you know, like, to put it as simply as they could. And so I think it would be really interesting for them to really trace back. And, you know, many could say, like, oh, yeah, well, like, my great, great grandparents came here, and they had nothing. And, you know, maybe you're like, okay, that was, like, five generations ago, or whatever. Uh, and then just to see, you know, maybe others being like, oh, well, I still consider us, you know, uh, working poor, or or basically, I'm the one who broke that cycle. So I think something like that would really show, you know, uh, what we're you know what we're seeing there. Um, so I, I'm mentioning all of that, and I'm like, at the simplest, no, you got to do more than believe, or it's got to be more than just belief. You have to believe, yes, but that's not the reason, you know, many people are being kept in poverty or uh, or different different situations. Uh, especially when we break down the statistics of uh, from generational wealth to those sort of cycles of poverty and not just speed bumps along the way, but things that have intentionally pulled, you know, pulled the person down who's on their way. Juan, (laughs) (laughs) you had no problem finding all of these black people uh, for you to become a predatory lender to or whatever it might be you had no problem finding all of these black people, you know, for you to exploit them. But then when it comes to finding black people to be like, okay, we want, uh, you know, we want your talent and for you to work with us and be a better company, then you have problems finding black people. Okay. All right. That's (laughs) one (laughs) thing. So, so, you know, it's, it's just that, uh, so so for me, I, I think really what comes to mind is like, okay, when you look at that talent pool, yes, it's probably because of where you're recruiting from and just practices that you're using. That that's that thing because there is enough black talent, but you're probably just not looking in the right places. Or, uh, and I mean by looking in the right places, it's just like you know your recruiting strategies and the things that you look for, uh, that doesn't really speak to. I would my assumption would be cultures of people that other than people that are non-white. Uh, and then also there's the question of if you're doing all of this and we're saying you're hurting Black and Brown communities, then even from those Black people that are qualified, that, that are you know, that you're finding and stuff, I'm sure there's a moral thing that exists where they're like, no, you've been hurting the Black and Brown community, so I don't want to work for you. So this is where I'm like, two things are true at the same time. Uh, it is hard for them to find Black talent because I believe there's much Black talent that they're either not looking in the right places or black talent does not really want to work with them.
0: Thank you. Yeah, for it. and I think the key thing is that it's not that, <laughs> the point is not that there is, that it just doesn't exist, mm-hmm. point blank. And my issue with the situation, which I think that list you gave kind of just highlights it even more, is when when an organization is confronted with, potentially racially disparate uh, hiring practices. And the first thing they say is, oh no, there's just not enough, not enough uh, people of color or whatever group you're looking for in the talent pool. What you're saying is, and particularly as it relates to race, is what you're saying is, no, our hiring processes from top to bottom are completely free of bias and are completely uh, unaffected by societal trends and not just societal trends, but just society in general, like the, the legacy of the, of racism in America, our company, unlike all the other ones is completely, completely unaffected by that which is a dumb thing to say because unless you have been putting like consorted efforts into reforming your your company culture including hiring practices then I don't think anybody like if if you're not thinking about if you're if you're just going with the flow the flow of of America is racist and so if this is the first time you're thinking about it, you should, like, you should assume, it's safe to assume that your practices are are racist. And the other thing, the other problem I had with it is, so after you, when you say, oh, no, it's not us, then, then who is the problem with? And you're saying that the problem is with Black people, that Black people are not good enough to work here. And so by trying to not sound racist, you have actually made a racist claim and reinforced racist ideas about black people's ability to perform in professional arenas. Man, listen, season five was that heat. Thank you so much to everybody who helped me get those clips together. Uh, Shoutouts to Joey, Adriana and Fred Reed, Keith and Chasley Woodley, uh, my beautiful wife Monique, Chelsea and Shannon who themselves were featured in these in these clips. Adriana as well. Uh, Jessica and Darren Smith. Thank you. Thank you so much. I could not have done this without you. And I cannot think of a better way. To cap off Season 5, then with a special address from my pastor, the man of the hour, Pastor Ryan Brooks. As you know, at the end of each season, there's a break, so I wanted to make sure that I left you all with some encouragement, some words to live by, some biblical encouragement to keep. Keep fighting the good fight. And man, Pastor Ryan, or should I say the Holy Spirit via Pastor Ryan, definitely, definitely delivers on this. So once again, without further ado, enjoy. All right, everybody. I am here with a very, very, very special guest. My pastor, Pastor Ryan <laughs> Brooks of Vertical Ooh. Church in Hillsboro, North Carolina Pastor Ryan thank you so much for for joining me today.
2: Juan, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. I have watched uh, from the outside and I said, "Man, one day maybe maybe want to let me be on the podcast." <laughs> Glad to be on, brother.
0: Yeah, I mean pretty much like, sh- shortly after joining last year cuz it's been a year since I've been a part of
4: wow, the vertical
0: yeah. family. Yeah. We joined in January. Uh, last That's January. Crazy. It's already been a year. So it was like after a while being there, I was like, you know what? I, I, was, I, went, I was like, I knew I wanted you on the podcast, but I was like, I don't know what we we're going to talk about. Like, I, I know I want him, but what are we going to talk about? I can't just be like, Hey, let's do this. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I let you know, and maybe I shouldn't have, that. this is the season finale. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> not want to put too much pressure on you. This is the season finale and it's also black history month. And yes. one thing I want to do, especially since, you know, you know, usually there's a, a little break between the season finale and the, and the next, the next season. So I wanted to give, we just had a, a recap of some of the, the, the high points of all the episodes thus far, but what I wanted to leave the listeners with is some, some guidance, some guidance mm. on how we as believers should engage in the fight for, for social justice. And, but before I really even get into that, I, I want to ask what might seem like a silly question. Like all my listeners know what I think, uh, but I think it's really important for us to, well, for, I wanted you one as a, as a pastor, as a minister, as a man of God to give, you know, more biblical backing a biblical explanation of like should Christians engage in social justice yeah. at all like what should we be concerned about it and why or why not?
2: Yeah so that is such a full question and for the sake of your listeners, I will not try to unload everything <laughs> that that pops up into my mind as soon as I think about that. but yes absolutely uh, I believe Christians, followers, disciples, of Jesus Christ should absolutely engage uh, in the context of the conversation of social justice or justice in the general sense of whatever it may be. It, it makes me think of uh, Psalm uh, 89 uh, verse 14 and the Psalm is talking about how the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. Mm. The foundation is righteousness and justice And how we are called to pursue this, just like this idea that this is the foundation of the gospel, this is the foundation of what we get to experience as Christians. And then, you know, we see actually Old Testament, New Testament, that we're actually called to to pursue that justice, that we're called to help see people uh, made right, that righteousness is what we experience through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the justice for us. And so when we talk about uh, the great commandment and we talk about the great commission, the great commandment you know, is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likely to love your neighbor as yourself. Like how do you love your neighbor if you're not trying to pursue justice for them? So justice is not necessarily punitive or a penalty or a punishment, but it's saying, hey, it's, it's how do we make this right? how do we make this equitable? How do we make this fair? So when we go to look in Leviticus chapter number 19, where we see where it's actually breaking down what it looks like to love your neighbor. Most Bibles, the heading right there in Leviticus 19, it'll have there what it looks like to love your neighbor. Like this idea is all justice. It's making things right. So uh, I think one of the first examples, it talks about those that are farmers. Hey, don't glean everything you have. Leave something on the edges for the foreigners and those that are traveling, those sojourners. Don't go back and don't fill your baskets and then go back and pick up what you dropped and left. No, leave that for somebody else so that they can have. that. That is justice, that is, that is making something right, helping it be right. And so because we've experienced this justice through Jesus Christ, and not only because we experienced it, but because we're told, we're commanded to do so You know, like that is a part of what we're supposed to do as Christians. So one of the things, you know, you probably heard me say, Juan, is that salvation doesn't come absent of assignment. And so it's like, we don't just say we're now saved. Now we get to go to heaven. No, that's not it. We have an assignment to be ambassadors, to be advocates. That's what God was doing when he sent Jesus to advocate for us. For what? our right standing. And so what what needed to happen? Something had to happen. Jesus had to die. Justice was served through Jesus on the cross. So it is the foundation for us as believers to say, hey, listen, I'm not just saved, man, I'm on assignment. I have a responsibility to pursue justice, to to show what it looks like uh, for Jesus to come, not just spiritually, but also in the physical context in our culture. And it's a beautiful opportunity uh, uh, for us to, I believe it's a beautiful apologetic for Christ. It's a, a beautiful apologetic for, for the Christian faith. You know, um, I don't want to go too far and deep in this, but I think historically one of the challenges that other religions have had with Christians is that we, we were very uh, articulate in our belief in Jesus, but very very uh, uh, shy, bold, reserved in our action for Jesus.
6: Mm.
2: And so um, the world has a, a hard time hearing us use the language of social justice when there's been the absence of social action. And, and so I think it's a part of what we get to do as Christians to be advocates to, to represent Christ in the earth Nice. And that's what he did. He, I mean, like he came through and pursued our justice. Like that's what, mm. when we couldn't do it for ourselves, that's the beauty of justice. It's like, Hey, listen, this is old. This is, you know, this is what would takes for it to be right. This is what it takes for us to be in right standing with God. And, you know, we see that over and over in scripture, um, where, you know, he calls for us to speak up for the fatherless, the widows. Uh, to speak up for the poor, like we're advocating for those, so that so things can be right. Yeah, so I definitely believe, you know, I definitely believe Christians are called to um, pursue, to seek out, to advocate, you know, for areas of social justice. Uh, and here's here's gonna be the kicker: all areas of social justice, because mm-hmm. sometimes I think um we like to advocate for what is you know closest to our heart closest to our experience and that's totally understandable but as a christian i feel like you know we we got to make sure that we understand that as representatives of christ we're not just representatives in one context in one community wow
0: so thank you so much for that answer um i'm really glad that i got you on because i was like you know what i know pastor ron he gonna come up here with some scripture references i um, <laughs> So yeah, I'm 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 taking. Yeah. It as you're talking. I'm I'm definitely going to go back through and encourage everybody listening and watching. Uh, he he referenced Psalm 89 and Leviticus 19. I remember one time I was at a talk and somebody was talking about the per the the importance of the Old Testament, and, spe- and they mentioned Leviticus and it was like you. He's like if you don't. And it struck me because the speaker she said if you don't read Leviticus, then you don't like when you read in the Old Testament because so many. I I'm myself included so many Christians. We just, we love to, we love the new Testament. We love that grace and mercy and, you know, the, uh, and all that stuff of the, you know, Jesus going to the cross. And, and now we're saved. yes and amen. And yes, we need to read the, obviously we need to read the new Testament, but what she was saying is she said, if you don't read Leviticus, then when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself in the new Testament, you don't know what he's talking about if you don't read Leviticus and I'm glad you, you know, boil it down to at least a chapter for us, uh, Leviticus
2: 19. <laughs> Yo, I mean, and I mean, let me, let me just say this, like, you know, cause just, just for the sake of it. Cause I know somebody's like, well, you know, old Testament is, oh, you know, we, for that person that's listening, you know, Luke 11 42, let me read this to you. So this is Jesus talking. He says, woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. So he's talking to the people that claim to be in church and they're they doing all their, you know, their religious things and you know they're tithing and they're giving and they're serving and they're doing what they're supposed to be. He says, but yo, you neglect justice. He said, and you neglect the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Mm -hmm. he says, so we you gotta we gotta pursue we can't forget that justice is a part of the work that we do because he's comparing it to giving i want you to see that he's comparing pursuing justice and tithing together
0: i think that's huge because i mean the reason i call the podcast saved and woke is because you can be and should be both and you should be concerned with your you know your personal relationship with god as well as for the good of of your neighbor and i believe that's the same scripture where jesus says you have done these things but you've forgotten the weightier matters and he didn't say Lady not to do those yeah. Things. yeah he doesn't he doesn't say to stop doing those things he just nope. says exactly what you said which is you should have continued in those things while also remembering righteousness and 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 justice and i feel like the conversation, especially among Christians who disagree on whether or not Christians should be should be concerned with uh, social justice is they think, oh, if you think that I should be concerned with social justice, then what you're automatically saying is that I shouldn't repent of sin and I shouldn't stand up for personal personal righteousness and I shouldn't try and, you know, proselytize and and, and spread the gospel so that people can make their own so that people can believe for themselves, personally for themselves in the the life death and resurrection of jesus christ i was like no 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 that's not what i'm saying we need to do that like the bible is clear on that and and that's what's the same the and is a big part of the title of this podcast and we should contend for justice and you, and you know, we're, 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 we're big, uh, we're, we're adults. We can do two things at once. Uh, somebody, somebody I think <laughs> yeah. I had a, I either, it was either a guest or it's a conversation I had with a friend that was like, can you walk and talk at the same time? And I was like,
2: that was good. That was good. <laughs> I mean, like what's interesting though, is when we go to James, it actually says to deny one really is the deny of the other to, to not do one is actually a denial of the other. Wow. So it's this idea of like, well, if you're not, if you don't have these actions or these works, then now we have to ask the question is, do you really have faith? You know, so he's saying faith without, I mean, works, faith like that, that's works is the evidence of your faith. No, you don't do works to have faith. It's not proof. It's the evidence of it. It's the outgrowth of what you say you believe. So show me. You know what I'm saying? Wow. And Jesus died for us to put us in this new position to be at the table and to live out what God has called us to do. Like he he freed us for that, man. Like in this, he freed us. Here we go. He freed us to represent him because prior to Christ, we were still trying to earn our way to heaven. And so that's where you go look at Hosea chapter three. And you know, Hosea buys back Gomer and he, He didn't buy her. He freed her for relationship. He had to change her status, she was a slave. So now her status is relational and now Jose and Gomer can walk in purpose. That's what God does for us. He changed our status, he made us righteous. He freed us from the penalty and the work of trying to earn our way back. Then we don't gotta do that no more. We can't get no more righteous than we already are. Mm,
6: totally.
2: you know, if, I'm, if I use my Orange County English, we can't get writer than we are right now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So now, but we free relationship to walk in that purpose that God has for us. And man, that, that is, uh, is seen in how we address everybody else. Like, yeah.
0: Hallelujah. Well, you mentioned one other thing. Well, first of all, this is great. And I really love, I don't know if you're doing this on purpose, but I, I love how with your scripture references, you keep going back and forth between old and new Testament. Um, well, it's so, the whole
2: Bible, bro. Yeah, the, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, but I
0: mean, because, because of what we talked about, so many people yeah. love to, and like I said, and you know, transparency a lot of times if i'm just if i want to take things easy i was like you know what let me just let me just read corinthians i'm gonna just open up <laughs> corinthians i'm not trying to i'm not trying to study i just want to yeah. get something i just want to get this quick word oh uh, you know oh philippians people love philippians uh um i'm gonna get up i'm getting philippians because i can do all things uh, uh exactly i mean we're not we're not, not going to get into the context of that scripture um, yeah. but one thing that you did mention uh it was kind of a side uh but you said you mentioned that christians in, engaging in social justice is a wonderful apologetic for yeah. for the gospel and so for all our listeners who are not really into apologetics and don't understand why you said apologetic um what what is what exactly what does that mean like to say that engagement social social justice engagement is an apologetic
2: absolutely so uh if i were gonna just like just for the random person it's like it's a it's a good defense or uh, a good mm-hmm. message uh for for the gospel so when we talk about apologetics in, in the context of the church or the christian faith uh we're talking about defending the faith we're talking about Um, articulating, someone asks you a question like why this, then we kind of walk through, uh, through scripture and outside of scripture, why this is uh, uh, important and what it means for us as Christians. And it's really a defense of the faith. So what I mean by apologetic, this is why this is an important apologetic. This is a, it's a message in itself. Social justice is a message in itself for the gospel. It's a message in itself uh, uh, for, for the advocacy that we see through the gospel and the narrative. So one of the things, so I'll give you an example. For us uh, at Vertical Church, we were trying to pursue a multi-ethnic church and we believe that a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church is a great apologetic for the gospel in that if we say that Jesus Christ is about love and unity, but we can't see that in the context of his church, then it's like, man, is that really true? Because let's be clear about it. You know, you can go to a Beyonce concert or you could have went to a Beyonce concert and you would have saw every nation tribe and tongue. You know what I'm saying? But to come to the church, we like, oh, that's still pretty divided. That's not, that's not a good apologetic for the power of Jesus Christ. So you're telling me that Beyonce can get every nation tribe and tongue together, but the church can't. Mm. So when we talk about a, an apologetic, as far as like social justice, it's actually a beautiful picture. It's a visual It's the illustration of the love of God. When God's people are actually representing God's love through their lives, it's an apologetic to those people that don't know about Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that explanation. So my next question is, so you've already laid out, we've established that Christians should engage in social justice, but there Mm -hmm. are a lot of people who, are you know social justice warriors and who have made it their either their mission in life or even just as regular people they're like you know i'm going to stand for justice all right yeah but so but believers are we're, we are we're called to be peculiar so what <laughs> should distinguish believers fighting uh for for justice from from non-believers who yeah. say
2: they're fighting for justice yeah i would say probably the foundational thing that should separate us should be our our motivation, our motivation and foundation for it. And what I mean by that is that we're responding to a command, not a feeling. Mm. And so what I mean by that is a lot of times in the conversation of social justice, especially as I've had conversations with, you know, uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Uh, uh, of a different ethnicity, different culture. Uh, We see or hear a lot of, like we saw this a lot with the George Floyd conversation. We saw something recorded on video. We felt a certain way when we saw it, then we responded. What I believe Christian, the Christian pursuit of social justice doesn't demand that we see something and it is a man, we're like, oh no, that that I can't believe it happened. We better have a conversation in our church about it. That's not what that is. See, because the whole world saw it. And a lot of people responded because they saw something that they disagreed with. But when it's our command and our declaration, it, it is our, you know, 2 Corinthians 5 17, we're got to be ambassadors. I know we're sent out to do this. Mm-hmm. So we're not waiting to feel a certain way, we're not waiting till something bad happens. We're not waiting till, it, you know, it's past our numb space.
6: Mm.
2: You know, cause we all have that like, and just think about it, you know, I'm 37 and I've just, you know, I'm only 37, but I've seen a lot. And as an American, as a black man, certain things I've almost become numb to It's like, oh, that's just what happens, you know? Uh, and we don't wait till it get, gets past that. No, we respond to directives and instruction and to the God, that's what, that's the difference. I believe in what I believe Christians are called to do and what I feel like people that are non-Christians are called to do because there's something that's been given to us as a responsibility to love God and love our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Who, Like think about this for a second. Um, as, as citizens in America, we don't have to love the person that is our neighbor. Right. Whether physically, we don't we don't have to do that. I have no responsibility to speak up or advocate for somebody else unless I choose to and I feel like I need to. Hmm. As a Christian, we we are called to do that. We are called to 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 do that as believers, and I believe we are called to represent Christ in that way. So I think the difference is probably our motivation um our, our direction and I, this is why I think that is so important Juan is because when you don't feel like advocating, you're still called to advocate as a Christian as a person as a non christian when you say hey that's too much I can stop I don't have to go participate in that I don't have to say anything on this like that's when you know what I mean you you you're doing it based on how you feel it's more of a moral compass. We can get into the danger of that when we, you know, went later, but it's more of a moral compass versus a directive as a Christian. Like, this is what God has called me to do. And, you know, when I think about it, um, it's a part of why we, we celebrate having the Holy Spirit as Christians is because you know, he's given us this so that we can go out and fulfill the mission. So I think the big difference, man, is, is motivation. You know, Christians aren't trying to destroy another structure you got to ask yourself that when you're pursuing um social justice like what are you like what's your motivation what are you trying to to accomplish who who do you want to be seen you know what i'm saying
0: yeah I do. Yeah. yeah that thank you again for that i'm probably every after every question i'm probably just going to be saying thank you Thank you, yeah, that was, cool. that was um, But no, I really appreciate it. Um, and along the same line, so yeah. you said that our motivation should be the main distinguishing factor. And I think there's also a, a, a way to distinguish, I think another thing should be like how we go about pursuing, Absolutely. pursuing justice. And Absolutely. I, like, cause the world, like a lot of times people who are fighting for justice but Like people. I follow people. I've, I've given shout outs before, or I'm not, maybe not shout outs, but I just mentioned the work that they were doing. Like I'll, I'll see a post that they do on social media, like in retaliation to something that they see as, as unjust, which I will agree is unjust, but then their response, I was like, dang, man. Like you, <laughs> said, you took that one a little far. Um. A so basically far. how do we keep from being tainted quote unquote by by the world in in this fight so the the bible tells us in romans 12 that we should overcome for us to not be overcome by evil but to overcome evil with good so like how do we do that and how do we keep from resorting to the evil tactics that people will do for what they believe is a just cause
2: Yeah, you know, I think one of the things, even with that text, overcome evil with good, you know, I know the first time I read it, I thought about myself specifically. Like, how do I overcome the evil that I want to do or say or feel? I do that with good. I overcome that evil for myself towards others with good instead of, you know. Um, I think, you know, um, making sure like, again, having clarity of what you're actually trying to fight. And I think, you know, sometimes we make the habit of fighting people and, um, and as opposed to structures and systems. Uh, I think sometimes we spend time trying to destroy the bad person as opposed to advocating for the weak and the broken and the overlooked. And there's a thin line there. You know what I mean? Like, there's a thin, there's a thin line that I think we have to learn um, to to as Christians, you know, to follow, um, or to to walk. Because sometimes I and I've seen this happen where uh, Christians have become more uh, attackers than defenders. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think, like, when you think about um when you think about like what does that look like like how do we keep from doing it you gotta have some guardrails you know and this is why like for me as a pastor um i i'm i'm glad i'm a christian i'm glad uh i have something other than my, my how i feel in that particular moment you know um uh to guide what i say and do but you gotta have some guardrails i think you know um one of the things that I think, and I would say this as far as like how I preach or something like that, I have questions that I ask before I say what I say. And so when I when I think when it comes to social justice and those conversations and what we're doing, we got to ask ourselves some some questions. You know, we got to ask ourselves: Am I attacking the person? Or am I or am I addressing what they're doing? Am I defending? You know, uh, am I speaking up for someone? Um, that can't speak for themselves or am I trying to destroy another person's voice? Like you gotta, you gotta have some guardrails to help make sure, especially as a believer that you are representing, you know, Christ um, and you are representing that love because the truth of the matter is, is that person that may be participating, engaging or perpetuating injustice, Jesus Christ died for them as well with their brokenness and their jacked up self and so you know what I mean like I think I heard a pastor say this one time like it's the the um learning how to be a surgeon and not a mugger and what I mean by that is like you know if you have a mugger a robber somebody has a knife they stab you you know they cut you and you you die but a surgeon can cut you twice as far take out what's bad and you get up off the table And so I feel like sometimes when we pursue this conversation, you know, uh, we're dealing with muggers as surgeons sometimes. (laughs) And so you got to know going into those conversations, going into that work, hey, I'm not here to cut you up. I'm here to do surgery. You know, I'm here to show you a different perspective, I'm here to uh, speak up for something that you haven't seen. You know um uh not in the effort to destroy you but to in an effort to educate you i think what uh, I i hadn't posted it yet but one of the posts i was going to put for black history month is uh it's not a, um, a celebration of black history it's an education of black history mm-hmm. oh, i get people yeah. asking all the time like hey why why are we why every february i got to post i was like it's not just a celebration it's an education like i'm just I'm trying to cut away the, the scales for what you thought you knew about history in America and uh, the minority community. Like, I'm just trying to cut that away. I'm not trying to kill you with, you know, Black history. I'm trying to educate you. I'm not posting in pride, I'm posting in informing. And so I think um, just knowing um, how to deliver, like you said, the how of what you do when pursuing this is as important because you can deliver up truth poorly and people miss it. You know, uh, how do I say, uh, everything communicates. <laughs> so what I'm saying is how you communicate actually communicates. How you communicate is a communication in itself.
0: Got you. So continue on with that metaphor of the yeah. surgeon versus Yeah. How do you approach someone from a surgical perspective that is actively trying to mug you or mug the people or the group that you're trying to stand up for?
2: You know, it's interesting. I would say with a surgeon, a surgeon um, finds a place of, you know, common understanding. So here is the, the, the surgeon. The surgeon, Juan, if you have to go in for surgery, listen, everybody in the room has to agree on this. Mm. There, there is something here that is wrong and we need to figure out how. Now we may have a hundred different ways to solve this problem, but let's make sure we start with what we agree on. And so when I feel like, you know, as a surgeon, that that is, that's skill. You know, that takes uh, uh, patience. You know, a mugger is not trying to be precise. A mugger is not like, a mugger is not going back and forth with somebody like second for second, you know, second for second, type for type. Like a surgeon is precise. A surgeon is studied. A surgeon is prepared. A surgeon is learned. And a surgeon is not doing surgery out of emotion. And so I think sometimes... Like, I hear people post emotionally. I've done it before. There are times where I've had, like, especially on social media, I feel like there's times, like, some people have wanted me to post or say something a little sooner than I did. And it's like, man, I can't because I'm being emotional. Excuse me. I'm in my feelings. Lord, help me. And so um, right now, my feelings are having me saying some stuff maybe that next week I might not feel no more. Mm
6: -hmm.
2: You know, so I think... Um, when you're dealing with somebody like that, you know, especially in that conversation, let's let's start with uh, a commonplace. Let's start with, okay, we agree on this. And it's amazing, man, when you're trying to work with somebody, because listen, you can't do surgery on me if I don't lay down. You can't. So I got to get you to a place where, okay, like, hey, let's agree on this. It's funny one, but like, so I used to work at CarMax and... When I first started there, man, I worked in the business office, and we would have people call, like, with all kind of foolishness. Sometimes, just upset, you know. We took their, you know, that car payment out too early. Uh, somebody came and picked up their car, and like one of the first things they taught us in customer service is to repeat what the person is saying back to them. And I'm like, yo, I don't got time for this, man. I got the stuff I gotta do. And they were like, listen, repeat repeat what they're saying back to them and what they were trying to teach me was, Hey, let's have common ground. So I would be on the phone. So let me just make sure I got this straight. What you're saying is someone took advantage of you and took you, I'm just saying back to them, whatever they're saying. And what I, what I'm doing is, Hey, we're agreeing on, this is the problem. And in that moment where they feel like, okay, he understands what I'm saying. He understands how I'm feeling. We can, we can agree that this is a problem, you know, then from there, we can move forward in the next steps. But I promise you can't do surgery on somebody that's not laying on the table. If you do, that's uh, that's called, uh, that's an attack.
0: <laughs> just uh, maybe more, uh, a mugger with some better tools. Um...
2: Yeah, same tools. They both got knives. They just use them differently with different intentions. And here it is, motivation. Let's go back to it. Motivation, Like I can't respond to everything I see on social media, my motivate my sometimes I'm gonna be with you, real with you want. Sometimes I'm just, I'm just want to prove you wrong. See what you don't know. Like that comes up. I'm like, okay, no, nah, I can't post that. Cause now I'm just, I'm just trying to make you look silly. Now, how does that, now how is that social justice? You no, know, that's my ego. That's my pride. That's me feeling like, you know what? I know something that you don't know. I'm about to mess you up with this. Now what you going to say? Like that's what, we gotta check that motive. You gotta ask those questions. Hey, why am I saying this? Who am I advocating for? Cause I promise you, man, a lot of times people have taken the platform of social justice to promote themselves. Hmm. And that's the difference again, I, I would say between Christians and non-Christians We kind of go back to that question earlier.
0: Yeah, wow you said a lot i was about to I'm like sorry, man. ask a follow up and then you said something else and i just completely lost what i was about to what i was about to say my bad bro nah you good that's why i brought you like i mean within the first 10 minutes we had accomplished my goals for this conversation. <laughs> i was like oh i think we did it i think we're good <laughs> uh but I, yeah so i'm man i'm just looking forward to the rest of this conversation um uh, so you mentioned our motivations. You yeah. mentioned being surgical, as opposed, and 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 then making sure we have our, you know, what you call guardrails in place. And you're right, you're so you're, right now. You're in the middle of a sermon series called "The Good Life," and yeah. the last, I believe, it was the last one. the last message you talked about um so we're going through the beatitudes and you were talking about when jesus said blessed are the merciful and mercy is kind of a hot budget issue particularly when in when you're talking about justice because a lot of times uh, christians and non-christians alike will be like see man that's why i can't stand church man because y'all telling me uh, people be doing us wrong and you're always talking about mercy Mercy, mercy, mercy. They don't show us mercy. And mercy just lets people get off scot-free. So, well, maybe, how, how about you do this? Can you tell us what mercy is and what mercy is not?
2: Yeah. So, um, the best way I, could, I can define mercy in the way I like to define it is mercy uh, extends relief. Mercy extends relief. So, uh, and what I think about when I when I say that mercy extends relief, and I think sometimes people are saying mercy lets people get out free, it, it doesn't extinguish a person's guilt. It deals with the penalty, and the punishment, and the suffering, and the uh, the what someone has to go through when they come to when it comes to their guilt. So. When we extend mercy to someone, we're not saying that they're not guilty. You know, um, I think that's a bigger issue that we see in culture with a social justice is that mercy has become the extinguishment of guilt. Let's call it what it is. Let's, if that person was murdered and executed, let's say that. If the person had, you know, was. Uh, Mis mishandled, and you know if the system is bent towards a particular people group, let's say that happened. Let's not just sweep it in the rug like that's excusing it. And I, and, I, and the reason I say this, is I don't feel like Jesus ever excuses our sin. He doesn't excuse it. He pays for it,
3: mm.
2: and we experience mercy because we don't have to deal with the full penalty of it. But he never said he never said we weren't without sin. You know what I mean? Um, uh, but I think when we talk about mercy, man, I'm thinking uh, specifically about the context of relief. So let's make sure, you know, we think about mercy in its totality. So mercy is not just when someone has done you wrong. Mercy is also when someone is relief when someone needs something. If, if I am carrying 10 grocery bags, one, you come up, you know and you all we all know we got those 10 grocery bags and they all the little creases of our finger and they're getting all red and stuff like that you about to drop one and one you come up and you grab five you just extended mercy towards me out of compassion seeing me struggle you created some relief that's mercy you know um and i think the way i other way i explained it the other night in our mission community group was that um when i was younger i, I used to wrestle with my cousin and the only way I could get out of some of the wrestling moves he would be doing on me is for me to say, I would tap out mercy, mercy, mercy. He would bend my hand or, you know, do something crazy. And I would say mercy. He was giving me relief from something that was due to me because I was losing. (laughs) He had overpowered me significantly, (laughs) but yeah. So, so that's when I, when I think about mercy, that's what I'm thinking.
0: Okay. So I feel like because I feel like we have a lot of preconceived notions about mercy and even after yeah. hearing your explanation of what mercy is sometimes I because this was difficult for me when I first heard you say this so like when I'm thinking in the context of holding police accountable for murdering unarmed non-threatening people of yeah. color it's like wait so I'm supposed to relieve that like we should relieve the officer of the the consequence of the 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 pain of the consequences of 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 his actions. so just like in, 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 in an example like that uh like what would mercy look like in that situation according to your understanding
2: yeah i think that mercy um is not always a complete you know um acquittal we're not saying that this person shouldn't be punished we're not saying that you know um, this person shouldn't you know shouldn't live ever again like you know I think we're just saying, hey listen in our hearts now again this is, and this is what I say I guess when I feel like this like if you um, if you kill somebody you know I believe that Jesus will forgive you if you ask for forgiveness, but you're still gonna go to jail. <laughs> I mean you know, Me forgiving you is mercy, in my opinion. That don't mean what you did was less wrong. It doesn't mean it doesn't deserve some type of uh, punishment. Let's be clear. There are times in our own lives, and we, yes, we've received mercy through Jesus Christ, but one, if you go out here and sin, you're going to have to still deal with punishment. It's not Jesus has absolved every punishment, every suffering for the decisions that you make. That's not what happened. That's not what we see. You go out here and eat unhealthily. The Lord isn't going to miraculously keep you from gaining weight in your arteries. That's not what happens. So there's still penalty and cost to what you do, but it's never what you deserve Mm -hmm. because our sin deserves ultimate separation. So if we're talking about the individuals, you know, um, that, that, uh, kill George Floyd. Let's just talk about that person specifically. Man, you know, I I personally feel like, you know, the fact that you would get life is a form of mercy. Life in prison, in my opinion, just because like some people would say, hey, you know, this was a very thought out, you know, neglected thing, you know, like, hey, man, he, you know, in some states, they still take people's lives Hmm. for killing other people. But for you to have your life in prison, like some people would say that's mercy because mercy is always going to depend on the heart of the person it's coming from.
0: Hmm. I'm really glad you said that, because I, like I said, when people hear mercy, they're just like, oh, completely absolved. We're just going to forgive and forget and act like this never happened and no one's going to be held nah. accountable. And we're going to pretend like we're all unified now. And you learned your lesson. Got that little smack on the back of your hand, a little pow pow, yeah. and now we can move forward.
2: Let me tell you what God is good at doing. Go through your Old Testament, and he's good at reminding the children of Israel what they once did. Don't forget. <laughs> Don't Did you forget? Like, you go, oh, okay, but let's not forget that you did it. And, like, we even see that in the context of the narrative of the Old Testament. He loved them. You know, there's even conversation in... Um, I want to say Exodus, where God is done with the children of Israel. Like, I'm done with these junkies. I'm gonna start over with you, Moses. It's just gonna be me and you, and i I promise I'll still keep my promise to Abraham, but I'm gonna just do it with you. And, and Moses, is like, no, but them your people, Lord. You delivered them. I didn't deliver them from Egypt. You did like he showed them mercy, even though he allowed them to go through different things. So, do you see how he still showed mercy? Uh, we look at Jeremiah 29, where they're in bondage for seven. That's still mercy, because they had turned to other gods over and over and over again. It's not completely absent absolving of absolving a penalty, but there is relief to that. And so I think, like um, for me personally, like what what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? Let's just say with the the gentleman that took the life of George Floyd. Let's just talk about him. You know, in that situation, it's a pretty common one. <laughs> I have, I feel like I have a responsibility as a Christian to, to pray for that man. Lord, forgive him. Lord, for, do you know the relief that you get understanding that God has forgiven you? Uh-huh. I'm not praying, I didn't pray that he doesn't do the time that he deserves according to the law. But I, I do believe that, that that a form of that is mercy like we said in that last sermon, mercy is based on compassion. When you don't have compassion, you won't have mercy. Yeah. That that's why there are people that are different on that whole that whole uh response based on what your compassion is. And it's understandable, not everybody's at the same place. Like I get it.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it also comes from the fact that a lot of people, Christians included, don't really believe that there is anything other. Then this world, then well, then this world and this world as we see it now, like that, there's not going to be any punishment or reward after, mm-hmm. after um, death, and so that if nothing happens in this life, or that like the the mercy that we would give would be something that we could see here, um, and it's not just them being, not not you know Christ having taken on what would have been their their punishment for eternity um so i really like that you said that because you said yeah i think life imprisonment would be mercy for for the people who killed george floyd i think that's that's really powerful to to say and i i mean you mentioned it like going through the old testament there is like god not just with the israelites but also with other people like god tells the israelites to oftentimes to like wipe out certain people, wipe out certain people groups. And I remember somebody was like, Man, are you kidding me? Old Testament God, he was like he was some a, a different God. Um uh, first of all, but um <laughs> like, he's an like, oh, old testament God was on some other stuff. He was not merciful. And I was like well I mean God knows everything. And it's like up until that point those people were living their lives you know uh disobeying him affronting him uh and I was like was that not mercy? That whole, those whole hundreds, thousands, however many years they were doing what they did. Um, I mean, Extremely it's-
2: Extremely merciful.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of times we, I think you, yeah, I definitely got this from you. You know, like one of the biggest mistakes we can do is say, oh, I wouldn't do this. So that, so how could God do this? So like, because this, because this is, this is my mercy. So why would God- Oh, I wouldn't extend this mercy to someone. So why would God say that this is right or wrong? You know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And also that word like deserve is is an interesting word that we, when we try to define what somebody else deserves or even what we deserve, like that's, that's moralism. That's what I feel. That's based on my perspective. And I'm like, Yo, even if we just look at the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt, that's mercy. He brought relief. He brought them out rolling. They had gold, they had everything. And then they turned and did their own thing. And he was like, all right, bet. Okay, I'm gonna do this. And they like, okay, my fault. And then he turned it like it was just back. So much mercy. Like it just appears that way because of how it's, it's a narrative of the Old Testament. And the New Testament is just different in how it's broken down. So it appears like, yo, like it was a narrative of what's going on. The New Testament is, you know, about Jesus' life and God's word through His uh, apostles to the church. Like, it's a much more focused group of people. But Old Testament, yeah, that's hilarious. I'll say it like that. It's <laughs> hilarious. I love it
0: yeah yeah. okay so you've laid out one that we that christians should be concerned about their neighbors and engage in justice um regardless of how we feel about the situation i really like that you said that oh man like i mean yeah i do feel like i feel a way i feel disgusted i feel hurt i feel enraged when i see black people and people of color being oppressed and marginalized but one thing the, The Bible tells me that I should be concerned for my neighbor and put my neighbor's good above my own. So, like, although I, I'm not poor, I'm not working class or anything like that, but I am called to fight for justice. Even when there are people who are in that category as poor and working class who I know they don't really care about. They don't care. They don't believe my life matters but I'm supposed to fight for that anyway. So I, I like, I like that. You said our motivations are supposed to be different. Um, And we, uh, I think you, thank you for uh, laying out the guardrails, explaining, definitely explaining what mercy is and what mercy is not. So as we, as we close, uh, we got 30 minutes left y'all. How do we, (laughs) how do we, Keep from growing weary in this fight because there's so much like, man, like a lot of times just when I, when I go on Instagram and I see, oh, somebody else was, was killed or, oh, they pepper sprayed this nine-year-old girl. I'm just like, sometimes just seeing the injustice takes the wind out of my sails. and. Not just individual instances, but we thinking back on just this the legacy of injustice, not just in the world, but just in our in our country, and then a lot of times yeah. in our state. Like my wife, she was because we 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 li- we live in Durham, and she was like, "Hey, there's this talk going on, talking about you know uh, the how 147, the the building of the 147 highway was like right in the middle of a black neighborhood of a of a you know burgeoning black neighborhood," and I was like, "Man." I don't to watch that why would i want to watch that like yeah (laughs) so i can get upset and just feel more more discouraged so how do we keep from from growing weary and giving up the fight for justice and sometimes a lot of people they grow not grow weary, not just grow weary with fighting for justice but they grow weary with standing for christ as well so how do we keep from growing weary in both those respects
2: yeah i think um a couple of things like one just make sure you have the proper perspective Um, that this is a work that was being done before you. It's a work that'll be done after you. And knowing that you play a part in a bigger meta-narrative, it's just keeping that in perspective. I think sometimes like we can see things like, hey, you know, it's not getting better. You know, (laughs) Uh, we're still fighting this. You know, I did all this and nothing changed. Like that can sometimes be, uh, wearisome and discouraging, you know? I think I heard this, um, this might be an odd like reference here, but I think it was the the playwright Hamilton by Lin-Manuel. Um, and they talk about what legacy is. It's, it's a plant in a garden that you never see grow. Mm. And so this idea that you're a part of a legacy, you and we, I believe we in our generation, we are uh, the fruit we are the garden that's grown from people that that so seeds that they never saw grow and we're doing the same thing so i think keeping a proper perspective on where you are and what your expectations are i think the second thing I would, I would think about also just keep from getting weary like understanding that this all won't be reconciled and rectified until jesus comes you know so like just knowing like hey God is not gonna use me to, to wipe out racism. It's not going to, and this is hard for people to hear sometimes, but I, I, yeah, I, that I hurt, don't- That hurt, that hurt when you say Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, dang. Yeah, because, like, but I, I, so it doesn't mean we do nothing. We're doing it knowing and in our wow. hope that is in Jesus Christ, not in what we do. Wow. So, like, so this is the thing, um, one of my mentors told me, he told me this, man, I might've been like 22. He said, Ryan, do for someone what you wish you could do for everyone. And do it for that someone like you're doing it for everyone.
4: Hmm.
2: So so for me, and, let, and I'll give you just some context with my feelings and thoughts on this. So starting a, launching a multi-ethnic church, like one of my prayers and goals was exposure, you know, uh, exposing different cultures, races to different things. And, um, you know, one, I think I've told you this, like I go to preach um, at predominantly white churches or events, et cetera. I get invited and about every time, maybe like eight times out of 10, I'm gonna wear a hoodie. I'm gonna wear a hoodie and I, and I specifically do this and I've been doing it for years. Because I, I, I really want to destroy the stigma that saying a black man in a hoodie is a scary or negative thing, or you know, trying to undo that, you know, stereotype of concern or whatever. And so, like, I know I can't do that for all of America, but I can do that for the people that I'm standing in front of. I've gone to several places dressed just like that, and people didn't know I was the guest speaker. He just kind of saw me walk up and you know, uh and they're like, and then when they see me on the stage, like, oh. Then when they hear me articulate the gospel, they're like, oh. And then when they find out I have a family, a wife, and children, they're like, oh. And so, like, it, it yeah. is this, it's what I wish I could do for everyone. I can't have this conversation with every single person. I can't paint this picture there, but I can do it for someone. Um, even in the context of our church, you know, that was one of the things that you know the Lord had put in my heart. It was like, Hey, there will be children that come through our church, families that come through our church, they'll have a different narrative than most of their parents had, black and white, just because of the motif that's being painted at Vertical Church. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I know at our church is probably one of few, if not the only place where there are white people in our church that stand, uh, that come and see black people leading so it's my wife preaching I mean my wife's singing. I'm preaching this has been happening for seven years almost eight years now and they probably don't go anywhere else where the the authoritative vocal and legitimate leader is somebody that doesn't look like them mm. you know what I mean so so what I'm saying is uh that is something that is I know I can't do it for everyone, but I can't do it for someone. And so I think sometimes when we get discouraged, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes we can't like, I don't see how this is going to, you know what I'm saying? I don't see it happen so we get discouraged. And it's like, if we're not supposed to see the light at the end of the tunnel, the fact that we know that there is one and his name is Jesus Christ. You know, that's where my hope is you know, it's not in the the results, you know what I mean, of, of how many people, I, I think about this even with like Harriet Tubman since we're talking about Black History Month, and like how she said she, you know, she could have freed more slaves, you know, if they realized they weren't slaves, like, you know, how, I mean, I, I can imagine like going back, freeing slaves and then someone like, nah, I'm good. I'm like, yo. Hundreds of thousands of slaves all over the United States. You know what I'm saying? And she's like, I, I can't, but you know what? I'm gonna save the ones that I can right mm, now. Yes. And I'm gonna keep doing that. I'm gonna, like, think about this. She kept risking her life. Jesus. Mm. You know, I mean, she's going up and down, tired, middle of the night, sleeping under church. You know what I'm saying? Like, just thinking about that concept of like, okay, How does she do that? She understood she couldn't save everybody. It was perspective. And so I think sometimes we we have to uh, keep that right perspective, I would say, especially in this fight for social justice. It's not gonna be dealt with until Jesus returns. The sin will not vacate the earth. And as long as sin is present, injustice, uh, pain, suffering, hurt, the the product of the fall of man we see that adam and eve will always be present among us Hmm. that's real it doesn't mean we do nothing but it informs what we do Woo!
0: sunday's tomorrow but you preaching right now Um, (laughs) okay so this is my final question Yo, it's go. kind of me just it's just like kind of just a, a rewording of the last question but yeah cool. How, how do we how do we maintain our hope and you've pretty much said this already like what should our hope um well you said what should our hope be our hope should be in jesus christ not what we do but how do we maintain that like how do we maintain the i guess spiritual emotional and mental fortitude yeah for that hope to be good enough to keep us one just here okay in our right minds and then okay enough to fight and to stand for 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 the gospel and stand for god's righteousness and justice in the public square
2: Yeah, I would say uh, hope has to be fed. Mm. Hope has to be fed uh, constantly, you know, Um, and it is, and we do this in various ways. We do this by, you know, reading our Bible. We do this by listening to podcasts like this. We do this by staying in a place of, of prayer, making sure that we're consuming Things that feed our hope, and so I think like uh, having self awareness of when you have consumed uh, in an unhealthy way. You know, like I think we've all like kind of had that feeling when we ate too much. It was like, oh, I think this is, you know, I think this has gone too far. I think, you know, <laughs> I, I've I've eaten too much, even of a good thing. You know, man, this is great, but I got I've consumed, and I think sometimes when it comes to social justice and. Um, those type of things, I think we can consume too much uh, and not enough of the hope side of it. So I don't think we were designed, I think I think it was a, um, a documentary that you put me on, but I don't think we were designed to consume information at the rate that we do. I think it was like a uh, social something. It was the social dilemma. Social dilemma, that's it. Yeah, and um, I don't think we were designed to consume at the rate that we do. And so I think like, you know, with that was the crazy thing about um, like these last few years with the social justice, like we could be in 10 different cities at 10 different marches, another 15 different rallies at one time trying to process that, you know what I'm saying? Hmm. At the same time and then Not just processing those events, but processing. This is what's crazy. And it didn't hit me till maybe like a week or two ago. You don't just process what you see in the video. We all do this. We go through the comments. So now I'm processing what I'm seeing and I'm processing what you're feeling and I'm processing what you're saying. And bro, that could just be overload. And then you want to go to church like once a a week and read your Bible that one time at the past. Like, it's just not a, it's hard to, feed your hope you know what i'm saying when you're feeding anger and you're frustrated you're feeding those other things so i think like we really really gotta guard what we consume and how much and how often and sometimes it's not even like just stuff on social media sometimes it's just people like some people are like just man i love the lord but there's some people i'm like god Man, I can't talk to you, but more than 15 minutes, you are like Debbie Downer. You know what I mean? Oh, my goodness, I know. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, not that I don't love you, but like, I gotta guard my soul, <laughs> I gotta guard what I'm feeling, I gotta guard, you know, the truth that I know. And so, like, oh, I, like I think that. you, yeah, you know, we gotta be careful about what we feed on and how often we feed on those things and so when we're talking about maintaining hope like man this is why we got to stay in our bibles daily this is why we got we need our journal time this is why we need to pray to be reminded of those truths because it's like yo everything else it would just kind of eat at us i was listening to a very quickly i was listening to a uh a conversation on parenting uh you know during you know like this pandemic and how like our family's been together and it was talking about how for every time you tell your child they do something wrong you could tell them they do something right three times and i was like oh man so so the thing was like you just assume your children know the right things to do they're going to do them Mm -hmm. and so all you really do is tell them what they do wrong and this is what i learned telling someone what they do wrong is not teaching them what is right yeah so so what does that mean like with within the context of uh where we are if all we consume is the brokenness of the world when will we find hope oh, Dang. We're, consuming the brokenness of the world doesn't give us hope for for righteousness it actually makes us like man i don't see how this is going to happen know what I'm saying? Like it's so you have to guard what you consume, Um, learn how to uh, uh, position yourself, learn how to turn stuff off, learn how to say no, learn how to disengage, you know. um, If if you're not careful, um, social media people what's being done will become your focus and that's what's crazy. What's scary is when what was designed as a distraction becomes your focus. Because hey. all a distraction is, is, is move focus.
0: Wow. Wow. So uh, one thing I do, and I did a really good job this time, uh, it was, I have a sticky note and I like jot down, you know, some uh, just really powerful nuggets that my guest shares and that's, I just show you. I got got a, <laughs> I got, a, got quite a few. Let's go. So thank you, thank you so so much for yeah, man. for joining me today. We could go on. And I'm actually. I wrote down uh, on this other one. <laughs> I wrote down um, uh, a topic I'd like to have you back on to discuss
2: uh, in go. next yeah. next season. Next um, season is that season two or three or four? Or- season six season six. Oh man. I can't wait. That's what's up, man. I'm proud of you, bro. That's what's up.
0: Yeah. Thank you, man. And thank you to to everybody listening for, uh, for the support and for the engagement up to this point, we're going to keep it going uh, in season six. Uh, But before we head out, you know, we always go to God, go to God in prayer. Um, And I think this is prayer definitely part of maintaining maintaining hope, reading the Bible and making sure we're always in constant communication, want communication to God. And also like, you know, not putting all this on ourselves because like God is our vindicator. He is, he is our hope. Um, so pastor Ryan, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just praying us out.
2: Absolutely. God, uh, your plan, your work is incredible. Uh, what you have done through bo- broken people over the course of history is absolutely phenomenal. God, uh, we're grateful as people to participate in that. Lord, there is a great work still yet to be done. There are people that still need to know of your love, of your justice, your righteousness, your your work of reconciliation, uh, your love for them, Lord. And I, And I pray just in this moment, God, that we are encouraged that we're not in this work alone. Yeah. That we're not in this work alone. God, that you are with us. Uh, You said in your word in John that you would leave a helper. Jesus said he would leave a helper, Lord, that we can be restored. We can be guided. We can be directed. uh, We can be strengthened by this helper. God, I pray now for everyone that is listening to this podcast today, uh, Lord, that they are convicted and challenged, uh, Lord, that they would first pursue being your child, then your servant, and that out of their walk with you uh, will produce a walk for you that seeks the justice and reconciliation and the righteousness of those that are around us. Ultimately, that they might know your incredible love for them through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we call it blessed, Lord, we thank you that you invite us into this work. Even as we are all still being matured, being developed, being made more like you, God, you still invite us into that. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Again, thank you so much, Pastor Ryan. This was awesome.
2: Absolutely, man. Glad to do it, brother
0: just like that season five is over ah uh, i once again i say this a lot or i've said it a lot recently but and i mean it every time thank you all so so much for listening thank you so much for your support for those of you who have commented who have dm me and told me how much this Podcast means to you And what is what it's taught you How it's opened your eyes How it's given you a different perspective Thank you so much And thanks once again To not only the people Who helped me come up with the clips But some of my guests um, Keith Forgot to shout you out earlier man Can't leave you out Keith he helped me Come up with these clips And like he was in the episode um, At a crossroad uh, Chicago at a crossroad thank you all so so much um this is this is great i'm I'm gonna give a a shout out to uh my my og number one fan uh nils Ribiro. like back when the podcast first started i think maybe a couple episodes into the first season i posted something on on the show's instagram which you should follow at saved and woke especially after this uh after this episode he got on there early in in my career and he said this was his favorite podcast i was like what me my little old podcast so thank you all to uh to everyone who's been um following supporting subscribing and sharing from the jump and thank you to all my newest listeners welcome 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 like i said uh this is the this is the this is the finale so that's why it's, it's extra long Want to give y'all something to tide you over. Are uh, going to be taking a, a good break just from the podcast, not from content creation completely and totally. Um, on, but taking a break until April 7th. April 7th is when the next episode will drop of the podcast. Until then, make sure you're following the show on Instagram at Saved. And woke, or on Facebook. One of the things I'm gonna be working on while taking a break from recording episodes is creating and because curating some other, guess short form content that I don't often have time to work on because I'm doing the podcast. And I'm all, of course will be working on producing the show once once april comes around i'm excited for it i hope you are and until then y'all know what to do keep the faith and stay woke